The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Michelle Kwan. In 1996, the world was in the midst of a massive cultural movement that saw women finally taking center stage. Nowhere was this shift more apparent than at the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. This audience was the loudest thing I have ever heard in my life. The noise, everybody's cheering, and we see all these USA flags. It was the most important summer in women's sports history. And team after team after team, the U.S. women kept winning. Basketball, soccer, softball, gymnastics. I just said, give me mine. Like, give me mine. Join me for Dear Media's Summer of Gold, presented by Together. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. For the folks who click on Where Are They Now articles, I am here. We are here. This is your first time reading my story, but it is our millionth time asking you to listen. These are the words of my guest on today's episode of Looking Up, Alison Stoner, a true multi-hyphenate. She's well known as a child actress and Disney star. In a personal op-ed titled The Toddler to Chainwreck Industrial Complex, she writes about the effects of child labor in Hollywood. She transparently and bravely revisits some harrowing experiences as a child actor and opens up a discussion on how Hollywood can work to change some of the traumatic aspects of growing up in the spotlight. She helps us understand the point of view of someone whose career started at the young age of three and initially spiked at 11, walking us through the extreme peaks and valleys of global fame, secret hospitalizations, accolades, abuse, rapid adultification, the psychology of being a commodity, and how she survived, and the work she is doing to make a real change in the industry. You might be as surprised as I was to learn from her that no studios, guardians, or agencies ensure there are mental health professionals looking out or advocating for the health and wellness of these kids on set. There were no plans for intervention, or long-term prevention of some of the most patterned emotional stressors that befall upon child stars. She is extremely passionate about creating the opportunity and space for empowerment through honest conversation and collaborative action to hopefully rewrite a new trajectory, a new path forward for so many. This must-listen conversation is raw, transparent, heartbreaking, shocking, but also very inspiring and optimistic for a new future where no child should be subjected to cruel conditions within the industry. Please take a listen to my guest, Alison Stoner. I am super excited to have you on Looking Up today for so many reasons. And the way that we start the Looking Up podcast is uh, I like to start off with a little section that I call Looking In, which is really just a series of very short, rapid fire style questions for the audience and myself to get to know you a little more intimately. So don't put too much thought into it. No judgment, just the first thing that comes to your mind. Perfect. I can do that. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, great. So Allison, has there been a book that you have read 
that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? And if so, please share with us what the title is and why. I am currently reading The Embodied Mind, which is in the cognitive neuroscience field. And it also crosses over into contemplative traditions. And it's providing a new framework for how I understand cognition and meaning-making and perception and awareness. And it is fundamentally changing, honestly, the trajectory of my mind and body education. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited. And if you feel geeky, <laughs> definitely check it out. <laughs> I'm just hoping that most people listening feel geeky because um, that's kind of what this whole podcast is about. And it's about everything you just said. So, okay. How would you describe yourself in three words as a teenager during the high school years? Oh, I feel a nice little ache right away. (laughs) Golly. Needing approval badly. Ooh. Okay. I like that. Um, You know, I like that that was like a short sentence to really describe. I think that describes what a lot of us um, were going through at that time and actually still currently going through many people, Mm -hmm. many of us. A close second would be struggling with authenticity. Ooh, really good one too. (laughs) Um, Okay, when is the last time that you cried? Oh, (laughs) two days ago, um, got word that a dear loved one is experiencing something beyond their control and felt both helpless and supercharged to defend them. And yeah, very passionate about their well-being. Mm. You asked for honesty, so I'm I'm bringing it. (laughs) I want nothing but honesty. And I'm really sorry to hear about your, your close one. And I'm sending lots of love and strength um, your way and their way. Thank you. This is where we're excited that there's plasticity in the brain and transformation is possible. Oh yes, it very much much is. Okay, people think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. Oh, wow. People think I'm extroverted, but I am severely introverted. And people think that I'm sort of overflowing with this artistic side of things, but I actually view my creativity quite mathematically and technically. Huh. I like that. I I actually would love to hear a little bit more about that um, sort of as we move forward in here. Sure. Um, Okay. My last rapid fire style question for you is three things that have brought you joy today so far. Hmm. I had a really beautiful weekend meeting new people and being an introvert, I was typically nervous to go into social settings, but I'm realizing that I have grown enough in confidence and feeling at ease in who I am that I'm able to interact with strangers and not feel that kind of need for approval. So that was kind of a a twofold win to meet wonderful folks and feel comfortable in my skin. And then a third is I'm moving and I'm relocating to hopefully a more permanent place after traveling and and shifting homes probably two dozen times in my life. Wow. Wow. Well, that is so cool. And I'm excited for you. There's nothing sort of more optimistic than moving somewhere that feels like you could settle there. It's 
completely new territory for me. And, you know, I'm looking forward to learning how to tend to an environment on my own. And I've lived alone, but this, it just feels different because I actually want to ground in the space and not just travel through it. Yes. Well, I'm just really, really excited to have this conversation with you, like I said, for so many different reasons. And one of them is being someone that studied clinical health psychology and did it in Los Angeles, did my doctorate here and um, all of my clinical hours and the postdoc fellowships and so much of it being in this this one particular area. um, I've actually like really pondered just mental health and and the relationship between mental health and and child actors really like honestly i've really i've i've really really thought about it pondered it i've been shocked in a lot of ways of how little mental health is at all talked about or involved in the process of child stardom i think it's like so to me at least it is like absolutely makes no sense to me like i think it's one of the most important things and topics that should be involved throughout the entire, every step of the way for most humans in general, but really for the population of of children that literally become stars. And this is something that you have lived through. I think more importantly, this is something that you are a very strong advocate for. And not just by your own experience, but I get the sense from everything I read about you that your sort of goal and passion is really about preventative care and protecting the other kids out there that are going through the industry. I would love for you to talk a little bit about your story. Um, I know many people listening probably know about how you find your how you found your way into acting and how it, you became a successful actress as a very, very, very small child. And then I'd love to talk a little bit more specifically about the uh, toddler to train wreck pipeline. But um, really just to give people that some people may not know, um, what was your childhood story into acting? Yes, absolutely. I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio. And around three years old, I started dancing in a local dance company. At six, I enrolled in a modeling academy and they invited a number of young people to attend this convention. At the convention, you perform across a bunch of categories and based on how well you do, you might receive callbacks from local and national, you know, agencies and and management firms. And I, thankfully, you could say, (laughs) double-edged sword, had really strong feedback. And we were strongly encouraged to try to explore what it would look like to audition in LA. Well, I ended up booking work very early on, which forced us as a family to make a decision whether we wanted to stay separate with my mother and I in California and my family in Ohio, or if we wanted to relocate and uproot everyone, which of course deeply affects my sisters and my entire family and friend group. Do you have older sisters? I do. I have two older sisters and then several step-siblings. And in Los Angeles, again, I had this experience of beginner's luck, you could call it this string of bookings and it is invigorating and so wonderful to have that kind of affirmation immediately. It's encouraging. You want to continue training in your craft, but at the same time, you're becoming, you know, a part of this hamster wheel 
And it really sucks you in because it's all consuming and your life revolves around when the audition is happening. So you start to be removed from school and you start to be removed from, you know, your community groups or rec activities. You start accommodating and placating to the whim of the industry. And then there's also this psychology of becoming a product. Mm -hmm. You start to commodify yourself. And of course, at six years old, that's pretty much unconscious. And then there's also the the material itself that demands a certain kind of vulnerability and intimacy. Um, so in a way, you know, it's 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 really there's a, it's fraught with a lot of risky and vulnerable elements that that no family is prepared for. Financially, it's a whole other beast. And you watch families fall apart. You watch marriages fall apart. You watch siblings, you know, hate each other because of the wedge that the industry creates. And it really, it's, it's, it goes in many directions. Wow. Um, you know, there's pieces of this that I've thought about, you know, from a clinical standpoint and, and when I was practicing clinically, but there's some pieces I never even thought about that you bring up. So I definitely used to think about like how, a child many times in that environment, yes, they completely become commodified. And then at the same time, like many children become the breadwinner of their family. And there's that that is a whole nother thing. And then I didn't, I like really have failed to really think about the material. Like I read an article that you wrote and you were describing at six years old auditioning, you know, going from audition to audition and the first audition, you know, getting into character and, and hiding underneath a chair. And you you had to, you were a, a six-year-old that was playing someone that had just been raped. And I mean, when you think about that, like I have, I have an almost four-year-old and a seven-month-old, but like, I don't even think, no, I know for sure that like in two years from now, my child's not going to know what that is. And there is this idea of innocence in childhood. And I never even thought about the material that, you know, you as a child would have to play. And then on top of it, there was nothing after that to sort of support and sort of come out of that and help you realize that that was play. And and first of all, why? Like, what is that in general? Like, why are you even playing that? But, you know, like there's nothing to come down from that and sort of bring you back to the the real moment. And that really takes like a professional you know, in the mental health space to do and is necessary for a six-year-old. Like they're, this is like treating six-year-olds like they're like 25 in every capacity. To, to add another dimension to this, strangely enough, if we perform well, we are praised and might even be celebrated, you know, with adorned with awards mm-hmm. publicly for portraying these scenes. So you start to conflate that kind of vulnerable helplessness with approval and praise and admiration. And it's very confusing. And not to mention children, uh, people in general, but children are highly suggestible, highly suggestible, especially at that age. So like, how do we expect children in that position to literally separate what's real and what's not? Well, and and I, I do want to make the comment here about my parents. They were very keen to protect me and my well-being. So we vetted auditions. We turned down a lot of auditions based on the content. If there was explicit language that felt just premature for me to be engaging in, if the, the topic, any of it 
we did turn down a lot of auditions. Now, other families uh, choose to move forward based on their value system and, and perspectives, and that's totally their prerogative. Um, but it's not something that I'm trying to shame or blame or criminalize someone mm-hmm. for. It's truly, how can we be more informed so that we can do these things ethically and ask ourselves from a broader standpoint, why are we even writing and portraying this material in the first place in this way? Second, if we do need, if that is an, a story that is important to tell, because we don't need to just make utopian films, right. how can we position this in the audition room as well as on set so that it doesn't create unnecessary harm to the individual? I mean, there are so many ways that you could film a scene, for example, from the perspective of a young person. And just by tilting the camera from a lower position looking up, you can witness something horrible without ever subjecting the child to it. You're seeing it through their eyes and there's still a cinematic experience. You know, it can still be emotive. So there's so many, you know, we're infinitely creative for other reasons. (laughs) Like there's no reason that we should remove safety and, and human health from the equation when it comes to how we innovate. Was there ever a mental health practitioner on set? No. There are welfare workers, mostly in the form of teachers. Now, the teachers who are on set are often under a lot of pressure to bend to the studio. So you'll find teachers who don't really provide the space or the discipline to get any of your schoolwork done. Because also, if the child is already at a certain level of stress, it's hard to get them to focus. And it's actually more damaging to push them to achieve something else and split between schooling and then something, you know, gruesome emotionally. And of course, not every not every project is, is you know, this really dramatic experience. Sometimes it's really, really fun um, and lighthearted. But There's also standards and practices who sometimes show up to set, especially if someone's made a report. However, in between all of that, there's really no accountability. And I don't think it's intentional. I think it's actually power and authority and responsibility are so decentralized on set that no single person feels they're responsible to participate, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. You know, it's sort of like, oh, that's not my job. Someone else is looking after the kids. When really it's, we have a minor on set. Everyone, the village (laughs) is responsible for how we shape each other, especially minors. And I think we hear a lot about whenever we think of minors on set, like the one thing I think that we hear about is like how many hours they're working. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it kind of stops there. So like everyone, or I don't even know, like I've definitely heard that and sort of like, oh, well, we're monitoring the hours that the child is working and whether that actually ends up happening or not. But it seems like that's kind of like the bare minimum and that's all that really happens and gets thought about. Well, we also clock in and out on that set, but that doesn't mean we aren't clocking into rehearsal after set Mm -hmm. and that we're not clocking into training after rehearsal and that we're not clocking into... Uh, an audition that we have to self-tape from home after all of the others. So one set is not the totality of our job. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't even include the basic human needs of getting ready for bed and having any kind of nighttime routine that often just, you know, is completely removed from your schedule because you you hit the pillow and you're out and you've got to get up with legally, you're supposed to have, you know, a 12 hour turnaround or a certain number of hours before you have to be on set, but you left set and you went four other places. 
So, you know, it's, again, it's very convenient to just clock hours in one regard without actually looking at what the rest of it entails. And, and that absolutely trickles into every one of our industries and every one of our paths when your boss says, but you only gave me three hours. And you're like, yeah, but I know the research that went into it. I know everything else I was dealing with. And I've only slept two hours in the last week. (laughs) And I've definitely heard people's response to that. Well, I asked the child and the child's like having a lot of fun. Yes. And, and you know, the truth of the matter is I will, I will speak from my experience, I did have a lot of fun. I also didn't understand that my cortisol levels were through the roof and that my baseline state of being was anxious and nearly manic because of the adrenaline spikes constantly performing every day, being hypervigilant. Then of course, with fame comes this public scrutiny as well as safety concerns. Every time I step out of my home, did someone see me leave an address? Mm. I mean, considerations that are astronomically different than, you know, maybe a kid who's simply going to school. And and not to say we, obviously we all have our own unique circumstances, but there are so many layers to this that even if the kid is smiling in the moment, we won't really know right. the impact until later. And And let me share that my my body down to my bones, the density of my bones reflects my previous eating disorders that were a product partially uh, of the industry pressures. And my uh, nervous system, my limbic system responses are in part a reflection of the spikes and the dips uh, from tour. You know, everything in my being has been shaped by this I'm fortunate that I've had access to professional care. I've had mentors who don't give a, I don't know what you say on your podcast. You can say anything you want. Okay. (laughs) About um, the industry and and focused solely on my holistic development. And, And that is a significant fortune that not everyone has. Most people do not have. Many of my peers do not have and did not have. So, and that's where the the toddler to train wreck pipeline comes in because you start to see it's not an isolated incident. It's not a matter of a young person simply rebelling temporarily. It is a culmination of complex factors that are systemic, that are cultural, that are yes, personal, but can be mitigated. We really can can change this in a way. And, and it's, it would benefit everyone, including the bottom line, because studios don't have to worry about their talent not showing up and performing. You know, like if I could tell you the amount of money that's lost on trashing hotel rooms and whatever it is, and oh, they didn't show up for their flight. So that's another $300 and that adds up, you know? So it's like, come on, y'all. <laughs> what would you win-win. say? How can it be mitigated in the best way? Um, what would you say having lived through it and also seeing peers, you know, it sounds like you you definitely were deeply and have been and continue to be deeply impacted psychologically and physically, but also maybe some of your peers have been impacted as well. And you say maybe not even had access to some of the things that you had access to and sort of had a different trajectory. Having lived through that and seeing sort of other people close to you live through it, what are some ways that you think can actually like change and you want to see changed? Well, for starters, there are 
50 states with child performers and only 17 or 17 of them, I believe, still don't even have child labor laws. So not even policy regulations to protect or even, you know, uphold some standard. Um, So from a legal standpoint, that's a a start, an easy starting point to advocate for. Um, Secondly, mental health practitioners on sets. And yes, truthfully, they should be available for the adults as well and the crew. Everyone is in that together. I mean, I'm starting with children because that speaks to my area of expertise and experience, as well as, frankly, I think people might listen more when we focus on what's happening to the seven-year-old and then let that shift the overall cultural dialogue where we realize, oh, we, we need to rethink how we're doing business totally and how we're, we're operating you know, day to day. Um, so mental health practitioners, and then there's also something that could be done in terms of kind of an industry literacy course, where if parents are getting into the industry before they sign with an agent, why don't they have some sort of pamphlet? I mean, when you want to be employed by an employer, you at least see a job description. Mm -hmm. You at least see what skills you're supposed to have, what the requirements are. Why can't we say, Hey, here's what to expect. Here's the kind of time commitment. Here's the kind of financial commitment. Here's also some information on protecting the emotional and mental well-being of your child. Here's how to set boundaries. Here's how to navigate these really complex situations where you feel pressured as a parent or guardian uh, or or the child themselves to comply with someone who seems to be overpowering you. Mm -hmm. Um, So... It's all there. It's all there. And really, it's a matter of including both the professional and clinical sides with the artists and families themselves. And some of this stuff seems so obvious. And like, why? That's like what my, you know, over the years of practice, just again, being in LA, I always wondered like, why? Why isn't there a mental health practitioner on every single set? Like that really wouldn't be that hard. It also would not be expensive in the grand scheme of things. So why? Why do, why do you think, is it um, back to that sort of nobody wants to take responsibility? It's not my job. It's somebody else's job. Um, this other set doesn't have it. And over the years, no one's had it. So why should we have to have it? Um, and then maybe it's like back to this fundamental, which I see whatever happens to to a child actor as they sort of grow, I feel like the, everybody just sort of puts 100% of the blame and responsibility on the actual child or person mm-hmm. that it, it was sort of like, well, they just couldn't hack it. A couple of things come to mind. One, the illusion of separation that we create between quote unquote general public and quote unquote famous person. So culturally, we've really driven home this narrative that, you know, a famous person is either unattainable and therefore we strive to be like them or they're unapproachable or they're a diva or whatever, but it kind of dehumanizes people on both sides, Mm -hmm. right? Because if the famous person considers themselves to be superior in any way, well, then now you're dehumanizing, quote unquote, the general public when we're all really the same. And all of these are kind of myths that we buy into. So when we do that, it allows a lot of space for media narratives, for for an industry to actually capitalize on someone's suffering as if we're watching yet another show instead of a a legitimately true human Mm -hmm. life. Also, another thing that comes to mind is the research and the science and the, the pop psychology around 
uh, mind-body connection and mental health, it's still fresh enough that I don't think it's really been integrated into every industry. I think it'll become obvious that you so obvious that you can't avoid it soon enough. And I, I look forward to that. But in the industry, we just recently got intimacy experts for sexual scenes. Huh. So imagine all of the scenes that have taken place that have any kind of sexual intercourse or or violent rape or mm-hmm. any kind of anything sexually, romantically, there was never anyone there looking out for the well-being of any person involved other than generally, I'm sure people, you know, wanted people to feel safe. Right. But how many situations between actors, between directors, between cinematographers where someone was really crossing a line right. or just didn't feel capable or and didn't know how to use their voice, couldn't anonymously report misconduct, the gamut, you know? Mm-hmm. So if it took us this long to get intimacy experts, it does not surprise me that we haven't really yet taken the step toward mental health practitioners. But I will say a third component here is the industry runs at such a pace that I would make this argument lightly (laughs) that most people are not even pausing to check in with their own well-being. Mm -hmm. So how would they even proactively be considering the well-being of others on set? You are constantly striving to make you know, make the inroads into the industry or form network, form relationships, keep up with with the work itself. And you're spinning, 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 spinning. And productions are spinning, 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 spinning. So again, that kind of breath Mm -hmm. that a mental health practitioner would provide, it's airtight Mm -hmm. um, currently. So, you know, you, you kind of have to break things open a bit. And that's a larger, I think, societal conversation as well. I also think, you know, with the point of fame, whether it's for an adult, but really particularly for a child, because it's not necessarily our natural state of being to be a celebrity at all as humans and all the stuff that comes with it. But I almost feel like the, the sort of judgment or commentary on the whole thing is sort of like, well, you guys signed up for it. And this is all part, right? And this is all part for the course. And so any of the stuff that you've gone through, you know, you were maybe conditioned to believe that everything that you you went through, the abuse, the misconduct, whatever it was, the dysregulation, the burnout, like all of it, um, the anxiety, the fear of stepping out of your house, like any part of it, you were probably conditioned to believe that that was all just normal, a normal experience that is just par for the course. And and not only normal, but like you said, that that was my responsibility. And I actually will lightly defend that. Yes, we are we are accountable to our decisions. We are responsible for what we create and how we participate. It becomes a little bit tougher to navigate when we're talking about a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old. You know, and and I I'm by no means stripping away the immense privilege that's accompanied my experience and the immense fortune and the just advantages and in in strange strange ways. But still, it's it's the fact that I'm seven and I'm thinking, oh, okay, I deserve this because I chose this, and you know, this is going to be something that is a characteristic of my existence forever unless I quit, which would equate to failure, which would equate to losing my livelihood, which would equate to survival threat, which would equate to death, mm-hmm. at least of an identity. And, you know, it's all wrapped up in this like really, really uh, juicy, complex situation. 
for a seven-year-old. Yeah. I think about the the 18-year-olds who get into the industry and I go, hmm, at least you had some time to form an identity outside of the industry. My reality was enveloped by Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so people people wonder why, you know, your frame of reference seems so, you know, unrealistic. It's like, no, 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 it's it is realistic for me. I'm not even I'm not speaking about this in a way from intentionally from an from an e- egotistical standpoint. I actually as a kid only knew the standard of having a dozen people stop me every day to express, you know, either praise or gratitude for roles that I had played. And it didn't, you know, I was constantly reminded by my family, don't let it go to your head. But it didn't change that. My worldview was that there were a lot of people staring at me at all times. Mm -hmm. So then you see people acting out for attention and you're like, oh, with a little bit more knowledge, I understand why they might do that to recreate the pattern of what they know. Maybe they don't even like that they're doing that, but that's all they know as their baseline. And they're just trying to get back to that homeostasis. Wow. I mean, that makes so much sense. Um, And there's like a quality of like, that's really sad, you know? Yeah. And also also, not justifying the behavior either. Yeah. No, but it's like, I see what you're saying with that grapple of like, as an actor, you know, many times, and I I don't want to speak for everyone at all, and I'm not an actor, but it seems like the goal is to be successful. And so there's this double-edged sword of like, yeah, like the more you're validated and praised and things are going well, you are making a better livelihood and you're reaching a more celebrity status. But at the same time, along with that comes a lot of this other stuff you're talking about that, first of all, for a child, all of it is is you're stepping into something that you have no idea. I mean, children have no idea about anything. I mean, we like my four-year-old, he is so smart and so intelligent and he knows certain things, but I would never look at him and be like, you chose that. Like, I like what? What do you mean? Like whatever it was, you know, like uh, holding him to that or holding that over his head. But like, I, I, you know, I do, it's almost giving me like hearing about it is giving me like a lump in my throat and tightening my chest a little bit because it sounds like so much pressure, just so much pressure. There is a lot of pressure, but you don't know that you're in a pressure cooker at all because that's all you know. Can you describe a little bit of, because you a little bit talked about what your childhood on set was a little bit. Um maybe describing a little more of what like the typical day at your height of childhood stardom sort of look like. And then since you've done a lot of work, like in retrospect, if you can kind of walk us through the impact, good, bad, but like directly the impact of that type of lifestyle and 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 what was going on has really impacted you emotionally and physically. And And, and I know you've talked a little bit about like actual real physical things like your bone density and, and, you know, from the eating disorder, but how, connecting those dots for us a little bit. Yeah. You only get one skeleton. So please take care of yourselves. So a, a typical day for starters, there's no such thing as a typical day. Mm. So inherent chaos is never is, knowing what to expect for a child, by the way, is really unhealthy. Yeah, no routine Mm -hmm. at all. Your call time changes, the scenes change, the people around you change. 
and you're only employed for very short blips of time, right? We'll film a show in seven days and then you're back to an audition circuit. Or more typically, you're auditioning for your next job while you're on your current job because you're afraid of being unemployed for many reasons. So a typical day, oof. So coinciding with the actual workload is then the individual's personality of how they relate to it. I being an overachiever and someone who was really deeply committed to you know, maximizing my potential would add on, would tack on additional rehearsal uh, so I could be more proficient in a skill, for example. So on a given day, I might be on set for, let's say, nine, nine and a half-ish hours. That might be, you know, three or four scenes. So we've been high, we've been low, we've been upset, we've been excited. Um, So you have gone through that emotional roller coaster. And then I might self-tape an audition uh, at home. So I might have to be learning during my breaks on set, uh, you know, up to 20 pages of lines as a completely different human being in a different story with a different director and tone and and everything, everything. And then after the self-tape, I might go into training. So I'm, you know, what they would call a triple threat. So that means at any given time, if I'm on set acting, I still have to warm up my voice and I still have to take dance class or train to make sure I'm maintaining the other skill sets. Because you're acting, dancing, and singing. Yes. And then, you know, others as well, but those are the main three at at the time. So I might do, you know, anywhere from two to four hours of training. And then of course, with school, I, I personally love school and I wanted to be involved academically. So I would sometimes lock myself in my room and study straight for like eight hours at a time. And my mom would like slide food under the door. I was so, I was such a machine because that's how I was trained, right? Deeply committed um, in ways that I don't know if I, I would, I don't know if I'd have that kind of rigidity if I, if I didn't start in the industry so young. Um, So you're looking at really, really full days. And then the next day, honestly, it might be something completely different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and there's no way to even explain to you the amount of mishaps and like frustrations and stressors that are overlaid onto each of those experiences, as well as the positives, the benefits, the, oh my gosh, you booked it, or you've got a callback, or it's just a constant roller coaster. And if you don't have tools to regulate, you know, you're really, you, at least for me, I found myself then coping in ways, you know, whether that was becoming restrictive with food or uh, just numbing out, dissociating because I couldn't tolerate, you know, I was constantly at my threshold sensationally. I couldn't do it. So, you know, I was diagnosed with a condition called alexithymia where I literally couldn't name or identify the sensations and emotions in my body. So, now looking at the impact of it, physiologically, some things that occurred, I experienced non-epileptic seizures, mm. a lot of hair loss uh, from, from my head, but then hair growth on my body, especially around the time of my eating disorder, very sallow skin. I walked into an audition once and at kind of the peak of my eating disorder and the casting director said, I'm not even going to let you read for this role. You need to go take care of yourself. And once you're better, you can come back. Up till that point, everyone had praised me for my thinness. It was never seen as a negative. In that moment, I was so hurt and offended by this casting director 
But that casting director is one of the reasons why I chose to get professional help because they had some semblance of a different perspective that wasn't tainted by industry standards. So yes, I was, you know, between 10 and 20 pounds medically underweight, pretty much always, sometimes 30. And I didn't even know that anxiety was the term for what I was experiencing. I also didn't know depression was the term for what I was experiencing, especially after tours. That post-tour depression is real. Oh my gosh. Chemically, your body has been subjected to the attention of 30,000 people and then you're alone <laughs> and you're going, I don't have a job. Who am I? What's my worth? You know, And the chemicals are creating a whole cocktail mm-hmm. of different narratives. So, you know, physiologically, emotionally, I had this this really interesting capacity, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, where you're capable of being what seems like vulnerable, what seems like vulnerability, but really nothing's truly penetrating. Mm. You're not really letting people in. You're not really building secure attachments or or trusting reciprocal connections and, and attachments. So I'm already kind of having this dismissive avoidant, you know, relationship attachment style that compounds on itself where I'm telling these really intimate juicy details in public interviews and yet I'm like completely walled off to everyone whether or not I even know that. Mm-hmm. So I could literally, you know, go on and on and on on and on and on and on, but I'm not here to you know, create the sob story as much as say that's my version of events, but every single human being has that sum total of experiences that has shaped how we take up space, how we embody the story on a daily basis. And, you know, my hope and my goal, both with my company and just in general in life, is to help provide tools that bring that awareness. I'm sure we're, you know, we have similar (laughs) passions so that you can not only accept and acknowledge what's there, but truly set a new course and retrain your brain, retrain your body and and experience liberation individually, but also let that permeate into the culture and let, you know, society shift to a more embodied whole state of being. I mean, we could have a different conversation around statistically how in a, a disembodied society is easier to control. It's easier to, it's more violent and aggressive. There are more hate crimes when we're disembodied. So um, you could say the, the major arc of my journey has been re-inhabiting my body, which was once a battlefield. It once felt very unsafe to be in my own skin, rightfully so. Now it's a very different story. And I would love for others to have that that same uh, experience of embodiment in their own way. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing, you know, so openly and transparently. I think that's one of the keys to all of this. And I, I talk, especially coming off of Mental Health Awareness Month and so many people asking me, what can we do to help destigmatize mental health? And like, honestly, my answer to that always is tell your story. Be yeah. open, transparent about your mental health journey. And, and if you if you don't want to, then at least be open to listening and create a space that's open to listening to a friend's story. Mm-hmm. These are the type of conversations that have to be normalized and had around a dinner table in small groups of friends in our communities. 
Um, We have to check in on each other, all of those. But this podcast is really about resiliency. And and that is the biggest part in, in my mind about optimism is this idea of resiliency and our resilient journeys. And so at what point did you become embodied and and sort of start to rebuild? At what point did you kind of have your enough is enough and start to learn how to retrain and, and create all that and take some of that power back? Well, I, I know that even beginning at 13, though I was heading into an eating disorder, that in a way was still a crying out for something, a solution for something. Now, I might have found several maladaptive coping mechanisms along the way, but I would still include those in the journey toward wholeness, in the journey of something's wrong, mm-hmm. I need help, I want to experience life differently. Around 18, I chose to go to rehab for my eating disorders. I particularly never tried you know, uh, substances. That wasn't really my, my path, but food was you know, quite, quite a hurdle. Mm-hmm. So I think in having that intense care inpatient where I was on bed rest for 40 days and, you know, standing was considered excessive movement because we needed to retain as many calories in our bodies as possible. And the whole psychological, you know, shift that that requires for someone who's like, you're taking movement away from me and I'm, I'm a dancer, I'm an athlete. And that's also my way to, to regulate so I think that that kind of started it unraveling it in a way that was I realized I've hit a tipping point or I'm at a point of no return where if I continue to heal I'm no longer going to be able to call on these old vices and these old habits because thankfully they're not even going to feel good or right. I'm actually going to start craving health. Mm-hmm. I'm going to crave well-being. And that's, you know, can be scary in itself because you're still letting go of a lot of habits. But I'd say around 18 uh, is when I was like, I'm deeply committed to this. And for me, what that involved was being willing to explicitly tell myself, I will walk away from the industry forever if that means I have my health and longevity and I'm able to serve and um, you know, fulfill my potential in another way. So it really took that willingness to say, I'll sacrifice everything I've known. And, you know, I'm an adult. So now I'm like more responsible for, for finances and whatever, but I will walk away and I will figure out an entirely different experience if that's what it takes. Is that what it took? Um, well, you know, I'm still on shows right now, so not, <laughs> not totally, but I did, I not only took a break, but I have fundamentally changed courses and I'm not currently pursuing entertainment in that way. I don't have the desire. I think maybe in five to seven years, perhaps it'll circle back in a different different way, maybe producing and directing. But for the most part, for me, it was a departure. Mm-hmm. And, and that was my biggest fear mm-hmm. because I knew what would have come with that is exactly the term that would haunt me, which was child star. Mm-hmm. It was has been. It was, you were once meaningful and now you're irrelevant. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't feel good to hear. So I had to brace myself for that and embrace the journey of believing that I was enough, 
believing that I had worth outside of this, believing that if I was completely anonymous for the rest of my life, that my worth and value wouldn't be diminished by it. And after you've tasted fame, after you've only known fame, that can really feel like quite a fall, quite a quite a huge fall. But we made it. <laughs> we made it and oh, I'm I'm so thankful. Sometimes I I wish that, you know, some of my peers had had the freedom to do this. And then see what what truly authentic course would emerge. That's what's most important to me is not is the industry good or bad? It's what is your healthiest, most authentic path? Mm-hmm. And it'll change probably, you know, down the road. Maybe in five years we'll chat and I'll be like, oh, I'm on the set of yes. <laughs> the series. Yeah. But we're not there yet. Well, I, I think that's so brave of you and courageous of you, all of it, but also to remain open because especially coming from the background of of so much in terms of validation being black and white. Like either, you know, you just wowed the entire audience and are being validated by a studio or by the number of people watching your show or the number of people that stop you in the street or nothing. So coming from that like validation of black and white and, and you know, everything or nothing, you know, wowing 30,000 in a crowd or being home alone with, with nobody else, those extremes and being open right now to being able to, depart, to, to see that as a departure and choose yourself, but also be open that maybe there's a way and who knows, and you're open to it, that you might still find the joy in performance and being on set and find a way to also be honoring your health and yourself. And, and that could coexist, you know, open to that, or it couldn't. And so open to that too. And so I think there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. I mean, flexibility as a, as a, you know, recovering perfectionist is, is always a win where you're like, oh, okay, I can handle this both end perspective. I can do the gray area. Mm -hmm. Um, That's also, I think what, what keeps me inspired to, you know, stay in that, that liminal space Mm -hmm. is knowing that, you know, the innovators who I admire often find their greatest ideas at the intersection of you know a couple different uh, perspectives, or it's in it's in that liminal space where you're either in the dark night of the soul, or you're it's, something is deeply mysterious, and you're you're waiting patiently for something new to emerge. What you're in a cocoon. All of these different metaphors, you know, often entail some sort of embarking into the unknown mm-hmm. and and being able to create a capacity for that. And I you know I want to be clear that I didn't just jump in. I'm that's not my style. I do have friends who can do that. I very much peeled back one tiny corner and then a week after another tiny corner and inch by inch revealed, you know, the the full uh, you know, or widened the purview and and the full kind of panoramic view of things. So, you know, this work isn't something that has to happen. For me, it does not happen overnight. It's ongoing and it happens in layers too. And my mentor uses the spiral staircase metaphor of, you know, you might think you're looking at the same old problem again and again and again, but chances are since the last time it's occurred, you've deepened your understanding or you've, you know, you've made around, Mm -hmm. um, and you're evolving, even if you're still dealing with the same issue. And then maybe at some point you will just kind of say, okay, I don't need this staircase anymore. I'm sw- switching to something mm-hmm. else. 
Absolutely. Looking back, do you, because I know, you know, when you were describing some of the success early on that you had when you came out to LA and you sort of were like, well, it was a double-edged sword of, do I look at it like I was fortunate enough to, you know, have had the success or was I actually not fortunate? And so looking back, do you have any wishes that either everything was the same and you experienced and did the things you did as a young kid and experienced the success and got to be on the sets you were on and do the the shows and, and movies and the tours, but you wish that there was more support for you and all the things that you talked about? Or do you look back sometimes and say, I wish I actually never got into any of it. And I had a childhood that, you know, was sort of what you described of just like going to school. It's a really tough question. You know, I, I can only move forward. Mm -hmm. And so I don't spend a lot of time figuring out what that would have looked like because I actually don't even know how to conceive it. Mm. I, I don't really have the ability to imagine what, right. what that would be like. I would say no matter what has happened, I'm still thankful and I still feel mostly fortunate. Um, and I, I think I would be missing um, really important information if I if I tried to paint this just as a negative experience. So I know that many others have had much more negative experiences than me comparatively. So my advocacy is not just for my own inner child. It's also for those who truly had even less of a voice and were subjected to much worse things than than I was. So no, I, I wouldn't change it. But if I have kids and they ask to get into the industry, uh, it would be a much different approach, and um, and I would I would weigh that decision very differently. Yeah, no, I I completely understand that. Um, we're I know we're reaching our time and and wrapping up, but I really want to ask you about the mission of Movement Genius and what it is and why it's so important to you and um, and when did you start it? Yeah, so Movement Genius is my sisters and my company. We co-founded in the middle of the pandemic and uh, we use somatic-based movement to help people improve their mental and emotional well-being. So it's non-athletic. You don't need to have any kind of fitness or athletic background. Come as you are. It's no equipment needed. We really want to help people reconnect their mind and body and understand that movement, um, and it doesn't have to be huge visible movement, but movement can truly uh, elevate your mood. It can shift your nervous system. It can um, it can honestly tap into the story that you've been telling and then help you recognize what story you want to tell from here on out. But, you know, fundamentally, if you're like, I just need some stress relief, if it works, you know, let me in. Definitely, uh, you can join our wait list. We're launching this summer more publicly, but we're starting with a small group if you want to try our classes. And we've got this incredible founding faculty across uh, movement traditions and cultures and identities and body types and abilities, disabilities. And we have loved the feedback. It's really, really heartening. Uh, and it's also really, really needed. So it started because at the beginning of the pandemic, I led 
14 days of mindfulness. And that included mindful movement and over 150,000 people tuned in. And many were saying, how can we do this regularly? So we started putting together the classes and courses. And then we realized some people will want some creative movement. Others might want something that they can do at their desk, just 10 minutes between work meetings. Um, Some might want something that's more meditative. So we've provided a bunch of categories of of movement that helps improve your mental and emotional well-being. I love that. um, Movementgenius.com. Movementgenius.com. Okay. So what is looking up for you? What are you most excited about? It could be in the world. It could be in your personal life. It could be career-wise. What's looking up for you? I'm so glad you asked this. A part of my embodiment is now understanding myself as a sensual and sexual being. And that's an area that has had so much shame and privacy attached to it in my past. And I'm recognizing that I'm ready to embrace all of myself. Mm. And knowing that is not only empowering, but it's changing my ability to relate to myself and to other people and even express myself differently. Um, still, of course, you know, I want to be as respectful as possible. I've got all, all kinds of other things that shape how that gets expressed. But those are really critical parts to my growth personally that are really potent right now. And I'm, I'm so, so thankful because it, it's such a sign for my personal journey. I'm like, oh, if this is happening, we're, we're really healing. So oh, I love that. I'm so excited for you for that. Thank I'm really you. excited Thanks. for you. So the last thing that we do on looking up, um, if we were together, you would pull a card yourself, but we pull a random card from my things are looking up optimism deck of cards. There's 52 awesome. of them. They have science-based um, or holistic prompts or suggestions that actually increase resiliency. So Ooh. I'm going to pick one random one for you. Think of it like your homework for today. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. This one's yours. It doesn't really matter what time it is or where you are. Put on some music, get up and dance. Dance like no one is watching or like everyone is watching. Allow yourself 30 whole seconds of complete freedom to find yourself in the beat. Woohoo at movementgenius.com. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me on Looking Up and telling your very, very important resilient journey and all the work that you're doing to advocate for mental health. Um, you truly have inspired me and I know you have inspired everyone listening. It was so nice to meet you. Super kind. Thank you. And yes, let us know how we can keep supporting what you're up to. And I'm looking forward to hearing from everyone. If you're listening, send me a note. Let me know what you think. And join Movement Genius. Yes. Not just because I'm I'm like a big fan of it. It's really beautiful. It's really phenomenal. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.